And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is the Hyung Min Son to my Harry Kane, Graham Ruthven. Graham, how you doing? I'm not bad, Ryan. That's a, a very flattering description. I'm not sure I could bend a shot from 30 yards into the top corner, but uh, I'm willing to give it a go. I think you can certainly do the podcast equivalent of a bent shot into the top corner. Maybe maybe Kane and Son is, is too much for us. So maybe McBurney and Burke would be a, a better duo and a Scottish one at that. Yeah, that one works. That's a bit better. More apt. <laughs> so I hope you had a great weekend, Graham. I certainly did. And many Premier League fans did as well. Uh, fans back in the stadium for the first time in a long time. Uh, 2,000 fans allowed in... Uh, is, it every, is it every Premier League stadium or is it if you're in a certain tier in the UK? Is that how it worked? Yeah, it's in, it's in certain tiers. So as, as far as I'm aware, as I'm aware it's, it's only um, London and, and Liverpool at the moment. So if you're in tier one or tier two then you're allowed um, 2,000 fans if you're in Tier 2 and 4,000 fans if you're in Tier 1. Again, as far as I'm aware, these things change all the time, so it's a little bit difficult to keep track, but I don't think we're anywhere in the country is in Tier 1, so it's limited to 2,000 in London and Liverpool and elsewhere in the country. We're in Tier 3, and in Scotland we have a Tier 4, which we're in at the moment, so um, we've certainly not got any fans uh, in Glasgow at the moment. But, yes, certainly very nice to see supporters back in the stand. It actually got me uh, slightly emotional, for, for the, especially for the North London derby, just because that's a game that's rooted in community and, and, and fans just being back in the stands makes the game feel more rooted in community. Obviously, it's been a, a TV event for pretty much all of 2020 and it just brings it back to, to those roots. So, yes, very, very welcome uh, return to the Premier League, these fans. Yeah, that's an interesting point about the North London derby and the fans there, because I don't know about how it was broadcast in the UK, Graham, but on the US broadcast, they made a very big thing about fans being back at Anfield. You know, it's the first time fans have been allowed in uh, since the since they, they won the league, obviously. But there, there was, there's, there's this perception that being a fan is more is more special if you're at Anfield than anywhere else, which I kind of, I don't know how I feel about that. It's, it's certainly, we, we know that the crowd at Anfield are very important. And I would say that, you know, having the fans back, I feel like it did make a difference, maybe even made a difference in certain performances. Uh, some saying like Bobby Firmino turned it on because he had fans for the first time in a while. And I'll tell you what I thought was great from the outset of the North London Derby, Graham. Uh, from kickoff, Arsenal took the kickoff and it went straight out into touch and you had those ironic cheers and claps from the home fans. I've missed that kind of irony and that kind of sarcasm from fans. I don't know about you. Yeah, we need pettiness back in in Premier League football, don't we? It it was when Arsenal came out. Obviously, the the teams at the moment, because of uh, COVID restrictions, are are not coming out at the same time as they normally would. So you had Spurs, I think, first and then Arsenal second. And when Arsenal come out, you know, you have the... The, the loud boos from the, the 2000 home fans that I've, I've missed that sort of stuff. You, they don't put that on the, the, the tinned 
fake crowd noise uh, on Sky Sports over here. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've missed that. <laughs> yeah, maybe they should get cheekier with the fake crowd noises. Anyway, it's probably uh, uh, too late in the game for that. One other thing I was going to touch on before we get into the nitty gritty of the games, Graham, is there were eight Premier League games broadcast in the UK. Um, and US fans might have noticed there's a few different broadcast slots. Like, for example, the Liverpool game yesterday was a late kickoff on Sunday. That's kind of a almost a new slot, which I believe was broadcast on Amazon. How's that been? Because in the UK, you obviously don't tend to have as many slots as you have at the moment. Is it? Is it? Is there fatigue? Is there exhaustion from having eight games across the weekend? It's something we're kind of used to here, but there's just a greater number of slots. So there's more opportunity to sit on the couch at the moment. Yeah, a little bit of fatigue. I felt it a little bit last night with, with the Liverpool game. Obviously, I'm used to having... Um, you know, at that time, there's Italian games on that I'll watch or, or MLS a little bit later in the evening. And obviously last night was was the, you know, the Eastern Conference final. So I did I did sort of forget a little bit about the Liverpool-Wolves game. And, and as you say, it's slightly different for us in the UK at the moment because um, we have all the games at the moment broadcast on, uh, I think it's four different uh, broadcasters at the moment, actually, Sky Sports, BT, BBC and Amazon. Um, that's unusual because normally BBC aren't in that and uh, you're not allowed to show games at three o'clock over here, which is, I think, slightly archaic. But the idea is that it's to in, in, encourage fans to actually go to games, particularly in the lower leagues. It's so, you know, a fan will go and watch, uh, you know, Accrington Stanley or, or, or Wimbledon, for example, your team. Uh, rather than sitting at home and watching Liverpool on the TV. That's the idea behind it. I'm not entirely sure that works like that anymore. I think if you're going to watch Liverpool, you're going to find a way to watch it on the internet. Uh, hint, hint, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> and uh, I don't I don't think, that, yeah, as I say, I think it's slightly outdated now, but that's been ditched in these COVID times with fans not being allowed in stadiums. And so we have these new slots because obviously the broadcasters don't want them overlapping all the time. So slightly different. It'll be interesting to see what happens now that fans are being allowed into certain grounds. Will certain games be restricted? Will they take them off the, the broadcasters? It's all a bit temporary at the moment. It's all kind of a little bit month by month, but um, certainly different uh, this season. Yeah, it's certainly different. And I wonder if it will affect future seasons where we'll see like a, a greater array of broadcast times, perhaps more like in La Liga, where you have sort of games staggered throughout the day. I wonder if they're going to switch to that kind of uh, of system. Anyway, Graham, let's uh, we've talked we've we've talked around the games far enough. Let's get into it. The North London derby, Tottenham against Arsenal on Saturday, two nil to Tottenham. This one finished. Tottenham back on top of the Premier League. Uh, they beat a team who sit three places above the relegation zone currently. This is interesting, Graham, because I was talking to some Arsenal fans before this game who were talking about what they expected from this you know maybe we can we could get a point out of this we can expect a, a draw if I was an Arsenal fan I wouldn't have been expecting a thing out of this game how do you feel about it that's funny because I actually had a, a bit of a discussion with an Arsenal, an Arsenal fan on, on Twitter before this game who I wrote a piece saying that this was an opportunity for for Spurs to really expose Arsenal and and this Arsenal fan was expecting a lot more. So I'm not in, entirely sure what, if, if that's your experience as well, I'm not entirely sure what they've been watching recently because this game was went exactly to the to the script um, for me. I thought Arteta would maybe shake things up a little bit to avoid that, but actually it was exactly to form from Arsenal. They, they looked toothless even in the second half when they had lots and lots of the ball. Um, they didn't ever look like they were going to score. I thought Spurs were well organised. They had a, a very clever midfield structure, and they gave Kane and Son a lot of space to work in. And I feel like I've I've come on this uh, this show I think three or four times this year, and I've said pretty much the same things. This is this is the way they played against 
City and, and, and against Chelsea as well when they, they drew at Stamford Bridge. And it was almost as if Arsenal hadn't watched those games. They did nothing to react to them, nothing different. And even in the second half, when it became clear that this was a standard Mourinho Spurs performance, th- there was no reaction to that either. So um, very strange from Arsenal, very strange from Arteta. And I think there are now there's there's real questions of, of him as Arsenal manager um, and, and pressure is starting to mount. Do you think it's as simple as he's got a lack of experience? I mean, there's, there's people mock him saying you know, he stood next to Pep Guardiola for a while and therefore can be a great manager. And maybe, you know, we've, we're seeing at other clubs, these um, former players coming in without a, a great deal of experience at the top level. But it is it is that reaction and or that lack of reaction that you mentioned there, Graham, that, w- that would concern me for Arteta. The, the fact that he's not setting up uh, any you know wildly differently for different opponents or, you know, and, and not playing... To, to his own strengths in many ways. Yeah, I mean, he, he did try something different, um, not specifically for this game. It actually was in, was in the, the Europa League game beforehand, I think, which was against Rapid Vienna, yeah. um, where he tried uh, Lacazette as a number 10, um, which I think speaks to the desperation that Arsenal have at the moment over this lack of creativity, which is really destroying their whole season. Um, you watch Arsenal at the moment, they don't look like, they're, they're going to score a goal. I think they've scored fewer goals than Newcastle United this season. Um, as you say, they're, 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 they're much closer to the relegation zone than they are the, the top of the table. I think they're even closer to the relegation zone than they are the top four. And, and, and the main reason for that is their lack of creativity. And, and the frustrating thing for Arsenal is that they have good attackers. I mean, Aubameyang, certainly in recent years, I mean, I, I, can't, I haven't seen the statistic recently. I'd imagine it's taken quite a dip this season, but there was a, a statistic for his two and a half years that he'd been in the Premier League. I think it was between him and Salah for the most goals in the Premier League. So you could argue he's the best centre forward or certainly best forward. I know he plays out in, on, the, on the left, but he's a goal scorer. Lacazette, I know Arsenal fans aren't um, really convinced about him, but he is capable of putting the ball in the back of the net. net. Even players like uh, Eddie Nketiah is, is a decent goal scorer. And it, it's just not happening for them. They're missing that link between the midfield. I mean, I know Thomas Partey was a, was a big signer. I'm a big fan of him. Mm. He was at the weekend but because he was injured. I mean, I don't know if you saw that image of, of Arteta pushing him to try and stop the, the Spurs' second goal, which I just thought was was uh, reflective of the way Arsenal are at the moment. I mean, pushing an injured player on to try and... Have you ever seen that video of the of the, fa- of, of the dad standing at the goalpost and he pushes his, his son or daughter uh, into the goal to try and stop this shot in, like a, in a cup game? Have you ever seen that before? It reminded me of that, you know, basically Arteta throwing Thomas Partey onto the pitch. To, basically, even if he, if he just threw him into the path of the ball, um, but obviously it didn't work as, as Spurs scored their second goal, but... I'm stuck between thinking this is an Arteta problem and a personnel problem for Arsenal. I think it's highly likely that they will get a creative midfielder in January. There's a few names that have uh, that have been mentioned for January. The, the Austrian, uh, sorry, the Hungarian kid who's, who's playing in, in Austria, uh, Sobosly, I think his, his, his name is That's pronounced. Right. Who's uh, who's who's very good. Seen him in the Champions League this season. Mm. If, they, if they get him, it could be quite similar to Manchester United getting Bruno Fernandes, not to put expectation on the, on this young Hungarian kid, but similar sort of uh, situation where Manchester United were lacking creativity last season and, and Arsenal in a, in a similar position this year. But at, at least with Manchester United last season, you could kind of see what Solskjaer was trying to do. I can't see the same thing with Arteta. This, this team is aimless. I think the only success he's had this season is they don't look 
as much of a train wreck at, at the back in defence. But when you're scoring so few goals, it, it, that counts for very little. Yeah, and if, if only Arsenal had a player who could be creative in midfield and play at number 10 slot that they weren't <laughs> using at the moment. If only that were the case, Graham. But you mentioned about Lacazette sort of being used in the number 10. He was indeed used in that, um, in that position against Rapid Vienna and with, with a, a bit of success, you could probably say. I, I suppose the idea is that he's available for link-up play. He's available to drop deep, almost in a Harry Kane kind of way, I suppose. And I suppose the dream is eventually to have him behind Aubameyang and Pepe. But... You're right. There's not much going on in terms of ideas here. The, the the problem with Arsenal here was they had they had great possession. They just don't do anything with it. They just don't do anything in the final third. The amount of crosses they put in and the amount of time they got in the final third and weren't able to break through. And that's you know full credit to Tottenham's back four and the two in front of them for for uh, limiting everything there. But they just couldn't do it. And apart from Lacazette's header in the second half of this game. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you another moment where Arsenal actually had a meaningful no. chance. Uh, you know, they they didn't have much going forward. Not much going on in the back. And as we'll probably discuss in the next few minutes, very very open in midfield, particularly when uh, Tottenham were back on the counter. And it just, I don't know. It's it's they're in a difficult position because against a team like Tottenham, they have to try and commit to attack. But when they do so with serious numbers, they know that Tottenham can just come back and uh, and pounce and, and, you know, score on the counter, which is what both of these goals have basically happened in that manner. Mm-hmm. I think the most surprising thing about Arteta is for someone who's worked with Pep Guardiola for a long time, you know, Guardiola, to, to a fault sometimes, will try something different. Uh, you know, we saw that in the Champions League, uh, which was a bit disastrous against Lyon, where he tried something different. He, he's known for shaking things up and it tends to be in the attacking third where he'll try something different. So for instance, Aguero and Jesus are out this season. So he, he tries Ferran Torres, who's a, who's a winger, but he tries him as centre forward and, and gets something out of him. You know, Ferran Torres is, is, is not exactly um, a natural goal scorer, but he did well in that position. You could see why he was being used in that role. Mm. But Arteta, and it's not just in the performances that Arsenal are putting in on the pitch, but it's, it's also in what he's saying. I think it was last week, he, in an interview, he said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing slightly here, but the gist of it was basically, if we try and cross into the box as many times, mathematically, something will happen. I mean, that's worrying to hear if you're an Arsenal fan. That That's harking back to what David Moyes tried to do at you know, <laughs> Manchester United, where there was that game against Fulham where Manchester United played about 400 crosses into the box. And looking at the statistics of the game against Spurs, they played 32 crosses, Arsenal. I think Spurs, um, off the top of my head, maybe had four or five crosses in the whole game. You look at the final third passes that Arsenal had, they made 210 final third passes. Spurs made 34. Now, having watched that game over the 90 minutes, who would you say made the better use of the ball in the final third? Who looked the more likely to score? It was Spurs with 30, 34 final third passes. Yeah. And that's that's really worrying for Arsenal is that yeah, sure, they might not have the personnel. I get that. This squad is 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 pretty unbalanced. I'm not sure about a number of their big-name players. Aubameyang's not doing enough at the moment. For one, Pepe, £72 million club record signing, not doing enough. But I don't see enough variety in what Arsenal are trying. And that is down to the manager. And that's where I think the real questions are for Arteta. I think so. That, that is really concerning. You mentioned there about the, the, the mathematics of the crosses and putting in multiple crosses and the, the, the probability of scoring from those. It, it is particularly troubling when you look at, you mentioned Man City there, whenever they are limited by a team in the low block, 
they're just reduced to putting in loads of crosses. When an expansive team is reduced to putting in lo- lots of crosses, that's a bad thing. And that's kind of what City were, uh, that's what Arsenal were aiming for uh, by, by Arteta's <laughs> logic there. And there's this, there is this notion that Arsenal are kind of city light. They're trying to play like Man City, but they lack the technical ability and they lack the tactics. They lack the man uh, with, with the brains in the, in the manager's hot seat as well. They're, they're, they're too vulnerable to the counter. They, they don't have the players to sort of use that system and just absolutely not able to make enough of that final third possession, as you mentioned, with all the, with those those pretty damning statistics. And, you know, there were, there were quite a few... Maybe we should talk about the goals because there were some individual things to talk about as well. That goal, uh, um, Hyongmin Son's goal to make it 1 0. You've got sort of Eric Dyer clearing a cross with a header. Uh, Suzoko plays it to Kane, who does some excellent transition work. He's becoming very well known for sort of quarterbacking these goals for Hyongmin Son now. Uh, picks out Hyongmin picks out Son, who interestingly doesn't attack the space, which may be what Rob Holding, who's the defender in front of him, is expecting opens up and curls it in. And it, it took a few views to see this, but and this is something that's been picked up elsewhere. This isn't necessarily an original thought of mine. But if you watch Reguillon, uh, the left back, making the run behind Son, he's the one who's forcing Rob Holding to not commit. So Rob Holding has to keep tracking back, uh, going back and back and back on the back heel uh, rather than going to Son, which might be a risky proposition anyway. But basically, Reguillon deserves some credit for that. He he forces holding into no man's land and Bellerin the same thing. I think Bellerin is um, as they mentioned on the NBC broadcast. He's caught ball watching when Harry Kane picks up the ball. He should stay with somebody doesn't. So you've got a situation in this goal and this is incredibly clever. This is one of the best goals I think of the season, Graham, because of this. He's he's there's a situation where Arsenal we've got Bellerin and Holding both in no man's land by a move created by Tottenham here. And you've got Gabriel also maybe a, a bit of error here because he kind of steps off Kane when he originally gets the ball. You could also blame Burnt Leno for arguably some poor positioning for a shot that, let's be honest, no goalkeeper's going to get to anyway. But uh, you could look at that as errors on Holding and Bellerin's part, but also some really, really good work from Son, Kane and uh, Reguillon as well. Yeah, and you, you, you've hit upon something there that I, w- that I was going to talk about with Spurs. I think it can be quite easy just to say that, and I've I've done it as well, I've probably said it on this podcast, I've certainly written it in, in, in articles this season, but it can be quite easy to put Spurs' attacking success down to the individual brilliance of, of, of Kane and Son, and there's no doubt they are individually brilliant, there are goals that they've scored that have been down to that, but the more I watch Spurs, and this was certainly one of those those games, and in those two goals they scored against Arsenal at the weekend, everything seems by design and that that is a stark contrast to Arsenal and what you mentioned there about Reguillon pulling defender a defender away from Son so he has the space I mean he runs you know what 30 yards into space there and even when he gets the shot away there's not really an Arsenal defender within five to ten yards of him that's Mm -hmm. down to as you you say there Reguillon pulling the defender away but it was even in things like, um, and Jermaine Genius did a really good section on this on on Match the Day last night, where Lacelso's main role in the in the Spurs midfield seemed to be to pull uh, Arsenal defenders away from uh, away from Son, so that when he picks up the ball, he's got space to run into. And I, I'm not going to be able to do this justice in a non-visual medium um, describing it over over a podcast. But if you watch Jermaine Genius, he does a very good job of of showing how. Lacelso's movement, he you know he, he's very quick. He he he'll he'll pull in and then push out so that a, a, a an Arsenal player follows him and then a pocket space uh, opens up in the centre of the pitch and it's either Kane or Son that picks up the ball. And the temptation is maybe to just watch the play from the moment that 
that player picks up the ball. But in actual fact, it's that space has been designed by the movement of what Spurs have done. And while there's a lot of talk of, of Kane and Son this season, and understandably so, they're you know two of the best players in the league, maybe the two best players in the league at this moment in time, I think the genius of this Mourinho team is in that is actually in the midfield unit. I think that's really where Spurs have made a massive difference this season. And of course, they didn't have Ndombele against Arsenal, but Lacelso comes in and 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 does a job there. And and actually, think he was maybe even more perfect for that game against Arsenal for the way he he created space. So um, yeah, both in the first goal, the second goal, just Spurs play in general this season, it all feels by design and and it's been a while since we've seen this sort of Mourinho I know he had a good second season at Manchester United but it, it wasn't quite on this level and it just feels like like this team has really molded around him and this was another illustration of that yeah very impressive stuff and Lacelso that you're right to point him out I think he, he seemed to have a more advanced role than you'd expect from in this game as well and I think maybe a good comparison between these two teams, Graham, will be the two in front of the defence. Hoiberg and Sissoko against Partey and, and Xhaka. Hoiberg and Sissoko doing a very professional job of, of screening the defence. I think the UK broadcaster gave Hoiberg man of the match, which he is, I mean, maybe you could argue it was <laughs> I mean, Sunday better, but it's uh, it's hard to argue with it. And then you compare that to Partey and Xhaka. And Partey, as you say, uh, is, a, make, is a big difference maker for Arsenal. And, you know, it, it certainly looked, reasonably encouraging from from kickoff but then obviously quite disappointing particularly with the second goal when he's coming off injured and as you say um and granite jacker doesn't go and cover by the way granite jacker doesn't seem mm-hmm. interested in covering when party's clearly walking off injured and then arteta worryingly pushing his injured player back on the field um but it's it's the, the key to so many modern teams and their success is those you know is the screen is the midfield pivot in front of a in front of the back four and there's just a such a a a gap in quality there when you've got Granite Xhaka and bless him, you know, he does have his uses, but I wonder why, you know, why wouldn't you use El Nenny instead of Xhaka? Is it a bit damning that he's on the field in the first place or am I being way too harsh on him there? Granite Xhaka is, is, is a strange one, isn't it? I mean, I think there is a player in there somewhere, but to be honest, after how, well, he's been here for what, three, three years in, in the Premier League, maybe even mm. longer than that. I'm not entirely sure what that player is. And I think Arsenal fans are the same. I think Arteta's the same. I think Unai Emery was the same before that. Um, the difference between someone like Zaka and and, and Hoiberg is, is astonishing. I mean, uh, with Zaka, you feel like he needs someone alongside him to stand any chance of being that, that deep midfield block that, that Arsenal need. Whereas... I think always that the best midfield blocks are the, are the, are the players who can do the, the job of, of, of two men. Um, that's what Hoiberg does because Sissoko, even though he hit, he is in that that position, he's almost a bit of a special ops player for Mourinho. So he he will man mark a player like he did with Timo Werner mm. uh, last week or two weeks ago, whenever that was. Um, and so he's he's quite comfortable to leave Hoiberg in the in the centre. And as soon as Arteta or any Arsenal manager does that with Granit Xhaka, he's exposed. Um, and I think Granit Xhaka is, is, is a player who kind of epitomises a, a bit of a cultural problem at Arsenal. I mean, look, I don't want to sound like a, a Luddite who says it's all down to effort and heart and fight and these British intangible qualities that a lot of pundits like to talk about when they're, when they're talking about football. But when you look at Granit Xhaka and, and some of his his, his pressing and, and some of his tracking back, and, and a lot of the time you do have to put it down to those sort of things. And I just wonder whether... My thoughts on Arsenal are that they, you know, they, with Arsenal, they've they've benefited in a great way from being a, a London club. You know, players want to go to Arsenal because they're a London club. Mm-hmm. 
uh, because of the location. And, and you see Chelsea have benefited from that as well. How many players have gone to Chelsea? You know, I think in Eden Hazard, I think, chose Chelsea over Manchester United because they were they were in, in London. But Arsenal seem to, and maybe I'm being a little bit harsh here, but they, they seem to attract players who, let's just say, they're, they're not... Um, they're not focused on truly pushing themselves as professionals and 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 they're a cosmopolitan club and as i say there's a benefit to that but they're getting the downside of this i think there's something not right with the culture of the of of, of arsenal as a football club i think you maybe see even in Yang who plays really well gets his contract and all of a sudden he's not playing so well anymore well is that just because his future is, is secure at arsenal he's actually quite happy being on three hundred fifty thousand pounds a week um, and and playing for a team that plays in the Europa League and and gets a, a, a occasional trophy here and there, I, I just think that there's a, something wrong with the culture at, at the Emirates Stadium. Granite Zaka again, maybe I'm being slightly harsh, but to me from the outside, it seems like he epitomises that, and and that's why Arteta, um, while he, there are questions to be asked of him, he is up against it. It's, it's bigger than the manager. I wrote a piece on this last week. It's bigger than getting a good manager. It's bigger than getting new signings in. There is something fundamentally wrong with the structure and the makeup and the culture of Arsenal Football Club. It is incredible. And it just, it just had me thinking, Graham. We used to mock Arsene Wenger for going for the fourth place trophy and for so consistently finishing in the top four. This is a wonderful, wonderful bit of perspective on uh, Arsenal fans thinking that wasn't good enough when when this is the current situation. It makes you realise how important he really was. And talking about really important managers, we should pr- probably just give a little bit more uh, praise to Spurs before we move on. This was the archetype Mourinho game, wasn't it? It was, you know, go and smash and grab a couple of goals and then in the second half, sit back. And I think they described it on the NBC broadcast as a professional second half, which I think is a really good way of describing it. Just not letting anything in. Uh, they they set up to win, as we've discussed in midfield here. The defence was so organised. Arsenal just didn't have a chance of getting any of their passes through. Suzuko and Hoiberg, as we discussed, the, the screen was just brilliant, forcing Arsenal to go wide with all those uh, 200,000 crosses they tried to put in. Uh, <laughs> just a really, really solid game from Tottenham all round and very impressive stuff for Mourinho. 33% possession in this game. And as we said, they looked like the better team, didn't they? Three shots on target. They looked like the better team. It is... It is ter- they're terrifyingly good at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, and you said there is the, the typical Mourinho performance. It really was. I mean, I don't know whether he's actually admitted this, uh, you know, in public or if, if it comes from a quote or anything. But the the the, the stereotype with Mourinho is that his favourite scoreline in, in football is two 0 So he he gets his favourite scoreline. There's even the little bit of uh, salt rubbed in the wounds after the game. I don't know whether you caught this, but he. He he praised Arsenal as a, as a great team with a great manager, and and he knows what he's doing there. I mean, he knows that's that's just uh, rubbing it into to Arsenal. So uh, absolutely everything about it was uh, quintessentially Mourinho. I think, to be honest, um, if I was to pick a flaw, and it's a very minor flaw, I think the final twenty minutes Mourinho would be slightly unhappy with just how much Arsenal possession there was. I think that's maybe where they they lacked. Uh, in Dombele, who has this wonderful ability to ha- to have the ball at his feet, completely isolated with three opposition players around them, and somehow wriggle free and just relieve a little bit of pressure. And and Lacelso isn't really that 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 sort of player. So when he gets the ball, he needs space to kind of run into. It. And if he has opposition players uh, around him, he finds it a little bit difficult. Obviously, he came off. Uh, before the end, I think was replaced with uh, Ben Davis, which yeah. again just kind of invited a little bit more pressure on top of Spurs. So that that might be something that Mourinho's looking to to improve on because obviously a better team 
you do get to the point where I know, you know, I don't want to say Arteta is correct in saying if you throw enough uh, balls into the box, you're going to get a goal. But better teams will make the most of territorial advantage. And Arsenal weren't able to do that. But against Liverpool, for example, who Spurs face in, a, I think, in a week's time or 10 days' time, then they would probably find a breakthrough. So that's maybe something he would look to improve on. Yeah, Tottenham getting some good results against big teams if we can deign Arsenal to be a big team at this moment, Graham. As you say, Liverpool on the horizon. Why don't we switch over to Liverpool, who played on Sunday night against Wolves, uh, expecting this to be a little bit more even than it was. It finished 4-0 to Liverpool, who are now undefeated at home since April 2017. They remain undefeated. This was the first time they had fans in the stadium uh, since they were declared champions. Let's spare a thought before we get into it for poor old Nelson Semedo, who is getting habitually used to conceding four goals at Anfield. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, actually. His his last experience of Anfield was uh, one that he'd uh, rather forget. But yeah. yes, four goals at Anfield is becoming a habit for uh, poor old Nelson. Yeah, indeed. So this was, I mean, this wasn't Liverpool firing at their very best, I would say, but they were pretty ruthless in this one. They did deprive Wolves of the ball as much as they possibly could. It seemed like it certainly escalated in the second half when the floodgates opened, but a, a pretty a pretty decent performance from a Liverpool side who, you know, weren't at 100% strength uh, with, with the, the goalkeeper. Is it... Um, Quiven Kelleher? Is that how we're saying it? Quiven? <laughs> uh, Kelleher, I think. We'll just go with that. <laughs> Whose name I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I like I like to think I'm quite good with Gaelic pronunci- pronunciation, being a Scot. But to be perfectly honest, when I saw that name, uh, yeah, Kelleher, we'll just go with the surname. <laughs> we'll go with Kelleher, which curiously was spelled incorrectly on his jersey and he switched it at <laughs> half time. I don't know if you noticed that. That's a, That doesn't happen very often. So even the uh, poor Liverpool uh, kit man having, uh, getting confused by that name. So it's not just us. But um, yeah, a, a, a very good performance from them. You know, Curtis Jones coming in uh, once again and becoming a regular when Thiago's not there. Uh, Robertson, like a Duracell bunny. I don't know if that's a reference that US people will get, but very, very energetic throughout <laughs> throughout this game. And uh, Fabinho, was Fabinho the standout for, for Liverpool in this game, arguably? Who's who's kind of really taking that centre-back position as his own, isn't he? Yeah, he is. I mean, you you would say other standout performers, uh, Gini Wijnaldum, obviously that, that goal he scored was was very good. I, I yeah. thought he was he was brilliant throughout the game. Salah, of course, I mean, sometimes... Sometimes you can get, have a little bit of a messy syndrome with Mohamed Salah, which is, you know, you look for other players that have performed well just because he's at such a high level consistently in almost every single game. So I think he deserves a mention. But yeah, Fabinho has been over this stretch of the last, uh, you know, month, six weeks. Um, obviously, he had an injury after the Van Dijk injury, so he he didn't slot straight into that that defence. But since he's been back, I think he's been Liverpool's most impressive player. And I think I said last week on, on, on the podcast that it wouldn't surprise me if his long-term position in this Liverpool team is as a centre-back. I mean, when Van Dijk comes back, you're obviously going to have the the physical presence of, of, of him. Um, it's probably a good idea to have someone alongside him to, to balance that out. Not that Van Dijk is bad on the ball, but, but Fabinho is obviously a central midfielder. He's got a really good command of, of the ball and he's, he's a good defender. He's got good defensive instincts, you know, and, and, and really alongside Matip, um, you know, Wolves had nine shots just looking at the stats here, but uh, quite similar to the, the North London derby, it didn't, it didn't really feel like they were going to find the back of the net. I know they had a couple good opportunities, but um yeah, a, a clean sheet really felt like a little bit of a given in this game, particularly with uh, Raul Jimenez um, being uh, missing, obviously, through injury. It just felt like Wills were a little bit toothless, and you got that sense once the game kicked off a little bit. But 
I thought this was a really impressive performance from Liverpool in terms of the the actual standard of the of the performance. They have played better, but when you just think about how they're missing Allison and Van Dijk and Gomez and Curtis Jones being in that midfield and and against a good Wolves team who have a lot of quality, I think mm. this was just a reminder that for all the talk of Chelsea and Spurs, Liverpool are still the best team in this Premier League. Who needs five subs, Jurgen? You're doing just fine with your with your B squad here at the moment. Let's not call them a B squad. That's a bit rude. But um, Favinho <laughs> definitely, yeah, doing a great job at, at centre back. And importantly, as you say, Gigi Wijnaldum slotting in in front um, to, to get the job done there. Whereas where we saw. I think I've made this example several times on this podcast, but Fernandinho at Manchester City, when he moved back to centre-back, when Eric Laporte went out, uh, they didn't quite have the cover in front of uh, in front of him to do those Fernandinho things, whereas Liverpool evidently don't have that kind of problem when Fabinho moves back. So very, very encouraging for them. Uh, the first goal from Mohamed Salah, uh, ball over the top. Connor Cody, who is maybe secret agent Connor Cody, uh, <laughs> taking the ball on his chest and... Uh, sort of maybe not making the best decision there with Mo Salah coming around the back and slotting in. This is an interesting thing that I didn't notice until relatively recently, Graham, that Salah doesn't tend to go for those headers against uh, the defenders. He'll always go around the back in the in the circumstance that the defender will let the ball get loose. And in this case, he did get lucky there. I didn't, I didn't realise that was a thing until I saw it there. Yeah, I mean, he, he's quite... Um, that there's a link between Van Dijk and, and Salah. I don't know if you've noticed. Like, they, they will ping passes to... Well, not I was going to say to, to each other, but I'm pretty sure Salah's not not pinging passes back to Van Dijk very often. But <laughs> Van Dijk's certainly pinging, yeah, pinging passes to, to Salah. And yeah, I haven't, I haven't made note of it, to be honest. But if I think about it, yeah, you very rarely see Salah going up for, for those balls. He'll wait for it to, to, to come down to feet. Um, either rely on the quality of the pass coming out from the back. And of course, he's got Fabinho at the moment, even though Van Dijk's out right now, he's got Fabinho to play those those long diagonal passes. Um, and so he'll either rely on the quality of the pass or a mistake from from the fullback of the defender. And uh, yeah, a, a, a trademark finish from him. And, and uh, I think, as I say, it's easy to to kind of maybe overlook just how good Salah is because we've got so used to how, how, how good he is. But um, he's still, I think, Liverpool's... Uh, difference maker isn't he is the guy that you can rely on to come up with a, a bit of magic definitely so and plenty of magic on display by the way Bobby Firmino did you did you see the uh, the nutmeg he got on Moutinho oh that was wonderful to watch so you can watch that on Twitter again over and over again if that is your want um, Gigi Wijnaldum with some magic as well with that goal you mentioned there on the counter another ball over the top this time from um, it was Jordan Henderson wasn't it really really good ball over from him was it Jordan Henderson yes it was and uh, I think it was Connor Cody who backed off again and gave him the space. So Connor Cody may be in trouble for that one too, if my memory serves me correct. Uh, the third goal from John Matip, another a, a lovely corner routine. Really nice. Uh, uh, to use the cliche, straight off the training ground, I'd say, Graham, uh, with, with the short corner uh, to, to Salah, who, uh, get, who uh, puts in a ball where they're basically queuing up to head it in, aren't they? And Matip gets it on there. And the final, the fourth goal, uh, Nelson Semedo. Poor old Nelson Semedo, another 4-0 for him. Uh, an own goal. Uh, which came from another wide position. Another amazing cross. Trent Alexander-Arnold coming on and getting uh, getting the, the, the cross, cross there. Very impressive stuff from Liverpool. Should we touch on Wolves for a little bit here? Very, a little bit disappointing from them. Um, one thing I did note, Graham, is the, the switch away from a back three to a back four here. And you could argue that it's risky to, you know, put a back three against a three like Liverpool's, you know, you want you maybe want a man advantage there. But have you got any thoughts on why uh, Nuno decided to switch to a back four for this one? It's not something we see regularly from Wolves. 
Yeah, I, d- I didn't see uh, any sort of explanation from Nuno himself. But as as you say there, you know, we were, we were kind of talking off air beforehand. But I, I think the only th- thing I can think of is is purely to to combat the Liverpool front three, just because obviously their their front three is slightly different in its in its construct to a normal front three, and that Fabino, if Fabino, sorry, is. Um, you know he's a centre forward in it, but he's not a number nine. He will drop deep. He he's he's not someone that you need to mark in the conventional way that you would a number nine. So really, the threat comes from Manny and Salah. So mm. you probably don't want to be caught out with wing backs against those two. But it's not a system that they've used uh, very often. They didn't use it well here. The other thing I was thinking of from from an attacking perspective would be maybe with Jimenez out through injury. Obviously that that bad head injury he got against Arsenal. Um, and with Daniel Podence up front through the middle, you're maybe not wanting to get up the wings and get crosses or and, and passes into into him as you would Jimenez. So maybe wanting to play through the middle, having that that three in the in the centre, which I know they have normally, but you're you're closing up the the, the back line and 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 the midfield by having a back four and 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 maybe giving yourself a better chance of playing through Liverpool. But having said all that, I'm trying to. Uh, to attach some meaning to a, a strategy that, that didn't work, that's quite evident in the scoreline and it was evident in the performance as well. So I, I don't think Nuno will be returning to this one uh, very soon. Perhaps not, yeah. And as we say, Wolves were pretty dangerous on the break. I seem to recall maybe one of the better chances was Adama Traore uh, getting the ball and I think he completely skinned Fabinho and put on a, a cross that went in at about 100 miles an hour and no one was able to get on it. Maybe, you know, if him and around, he might have might have got some contact with that. But they did. they definitely look very different without Raul Jimenez um, they just couldn't finish the chances they created as good as Pudence is it, it is a very different team without him isn't it it is and, and Wolves are in a little bit of a transition this season I think that's why they've they've taken a little while to get going it's a, it's a squad that's full of a lot of really talented players um, but obviously they, they lost uh, Doherty to, to Spurs and, and then of course Diego, Diego Jota who uh, only came off the bench for Liverpool I think a lot of people were maybe expecting him to start this game given the form that he's been in and also against his former side but he was a big player for this for this Wolves team so it, it kind of feels like with the signings that they, they made um, Wolves and with players like uh, Neto and, and Podence and, and you've, you've got the youngster as well uh, Fabio Silva coming in in the summer it feels like this is uh wills 2.0 and and maybe nuno is just not quite sure of how to get the best out of these players and and to be honest i think the team that we saw against liverpool maybe i'm trying to read the tea leaves a little bit here but i think if there's another big figure that's going to leave wolves and and they are a selling club i think that's their model as they want to bring through young players and then sell them on at a profit um you know you'd maybe say jimenez is, is, is the next one to go and um, so this is something they're going to have to figure out is how to how to play without him because, uh, as I say, if, if there's a, a a big prize asset that's maybe going to be in the shop window next, it, it would it would be him. It would indeed. Maybe George Mendes has already got a master plan uh, to, uh, to to strengthen this team. We shall see. Um... We've got Liverpool and Tottenham at the top of the Premier League right now on points, Graham. I'm going to put you on the spot. Who do you who who would you say if you had to put your house on it right now is going to take that title? I think Liverpool, just because the, the I mean, I'm gonna I was gonna try and attach some tactical meaning to that there, but I just think they're a better team. I think Mourinho is uh, is is doing very well at Spurs. They know what they're doing. They know what they are. That team, which I think is really important, but I just think Liverpool 
are both the the most uh, potent as an attacking force and also they, they've shown they can absorb a lot of punches, which I think this season is, is going to be really important with it being a, quite attritional with the way it is uh, with the scheduling. So, yeah, I still think Liverpool are, th- are the front runners, but I, I think Spurs will keep them honest for for a lot of the a lot of the campaign. Yeah, they certainly will and I think I think you you're probably just about right and I think I agree with you there Graham. That I I suppose the argument you can make is that can a team win a title when they play like Tottenham are playing when they are doing the smash and grab and protecting the lead kind of thing is that I suppose it is because you, you know the, the the adage is that defenses win titles isn't it so maybe I'm talking nonsense here but maybe Liverpool are better set up for to go the distance if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and defences do win titles, but what I would say in response to that is, you know, Liverpool's defence isn't isn't bad either. I mean, I know yeah. they're missing Van Dijk and Gomez, but really since that Merseyside derby where Van Dijk got that injury, that they've conceded very few goals in the Premier League and they've looked, if anything, tighter at the back. So I think they can hold their own even in a, in a defensive uh, point of view against Spurs. Yeah, and we should probably note this is anything but a two race, a two two team title race at the moment. There's a long way to go in what will be a very interesting season. Graham, let's take a quick break to talk about our main sponsors for today's show. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Graham, let's get continental. But before we do, I just wanted to talk about uh, Yanks Abroad. The Americans Abroad had a very good weekend this weekend. Christian Pulisic uh, getting an injury time goal in Chelsea. 3-1 win over Leeds. He's become the fastest American to 10 Premier League goals. What do you do for Christian Pulisic for that one? Gia Reyna getting the equaliser for Borussia Dortmund uh, at, at Eintracht Frankfurt. A really great near post goal showing that near post, near post shots are not dead. Weston McKenney also getting his first Serie A goal in uh, Juventus' comeback win in the Turin Derby. A 2-1 win for Juventus in that one. And a couple of players who we'll probably mention in the next few minutes. So, Gino Dest, uh, arguably a shining light in a 
difficult day for Barcelona. And uh, uh, Tyler Adams, part of a 3-3 draw between Bayern Munich and RB Leipzig uh, in, in, uh, in Bavaria. Arguably the best game of the weekend, that one, Graham. Let's take it there to Germany for this one. Before we get into the action, though, uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge gave an interesting quote he said that Bayern versus Dortmund, I know this isn't Dortmund in this game, but he said Bayern versus Dortmund is a level above El Clasico now. So he's kind of pitching the fact that these two teams are streets ahead of Barcelona and Real Madrid in terms of quality. How do you feel about that? I think he's maybe overestimating how good Dortmund are at the moment. I know mm. what he's saying. I think it's certainly a more exciting game. I think watching the Der Clasico is... Is certainly uh, a more exhilarating contest at the moment. Uh, the last few Classicals have been really dull affairs between two teams that um, just are struggling for attacking flair at the moment, which is not something you would normally say ab- about Barcelona and Real Madrid. So I think certainly from an entertainment standpoint, he certainly got a point um, because Bayern Munich and, and Dortmund are two teams that don't struggle for goals. I think the one thing that the Classicals got over the, the, the Bayern Munich Dortmund game is um you know is is equality between the two teams even this season where both teams are 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 not at their best that Real Madrid and Barcelona always seem to be on a little bit of an equal footing there's not much between them at any given time whereas with Bayern Munich and Dortmund you always kind of get the sense that that Bayern Munich are going to get over the line ahead of ahead of Dortmund you kind of get the sense that they're going to get the win or the title uh, glory or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, I get what you're saying. I think El Clasico is in a bit of a rut at the moment, but um, still attracts a lot of attention. I don't think that will change anytime soon. Probably not. But on the note about Dortmund maybe not being uh, uh, as, as as competitive with Bayern as as they as a, El Clasico would be competitive between Madrid and Barcelona, Andy Brassel in The Guardian wrote a piece this weekend about maybe RB Leipzig are Bayern's biggest antagonizer now. They are in third now, Dortmund are in fourth. Uh, it, what do you think? I think is there's some merit to that, that Germany's two most hated teams are perhaps bigger rivals than Bayern and Dortmund at the moment. And certainly the games seem to be closer, as is evident by this 3-3 draw. Yeah, certainly. I think there's, I think there's definitely merit in that. I think you, you also need to look at at Julian Nagelsmann's uh, record against Bayern Munich, even going back to when he was at Hoffenheim, I mean, he's got he's only lost three games, three games in, in nine um, that he's he's taken charge against Bayern Munich. So there's just something about Bayern Munich that brings the best out of him as a coach, and just something about his teams that that, that Bayern Munich don't like. And that this was another example. I mean, Bayern Munich were really pretty poor at the back. Uh, Leipzig exposed them a number of times three times obviously for for the goals but they, they could have scored more than that and as I say there's just something about Nagelsmann that, that Bayern Munich don't like so that probably means he'll be Bayern Munich manager within two years time because that's normally how that <laughs> dynamic works absolutely yeah so this was a difficult day for Bayern Munich's defense Sula and Boateng not exactly covering themselves in glory for this one it's the sort of uh, sort of performance that the offensive firepower of Leipzig is definitely going to capitalize on. They did. That first goal from Mankuku was kind of a really classic Leipzig break, a classic transition goal for them directly down the middle. Got a really nice pass from uh, uh, Emil Forsberg to Mankuku that completely splits the defense. Manu Neuer doing Manu Neuer things coming way out of his box. (laughs) Defense uh, defense arguably gave him little choice to do so at that point. But if you watch again, it was Boateng who kind of stepped in and hesitated 
on a new on Cuckoo, and that kind of and so he stepped in on Forsberg, I think it was, and it sort of released in Cuckoo behind yeah. him. So that was the uh, th- that was a bit of an error from him on that one, and. Yeah, it, it seemed like there was Silva and Berrettain seemed very disorganized, particularly for I think the third goal, the Forsberg goal, where uh, Forsberg had an incredible amount of space that no Bayern Munich defense should give any team uh, when the cross comes into the box for Forsberg to finish with, and Silva and Berrettain looking pretty pretty disorganized there, albeit a great goal with Angelino um, getting the I think it was Angelino getting the assist on that one, uh, or was it Nkuku? Oh, I'm losing I'm losing my mind here, but anyway, it was a good <laughs> so many goals. Yeah, so many goals in this one. It was Angelino, it was. Uh, and it was a really nice cross at that. But um, yeah, just uncharacteristically bad in the back from Bayern Munich, wasn't it? It was. And I, the one thing I took away from this uh, performance was, look, it's not unusual for the high line to be Bayern Munich's weak point. I think even going back to last season where they looked pretty much untouchable, you went into that Champions League final against PSG saying that if there was a team that could expose the high line of Bayern Munich, it, you know, it was PSG with obviously Kylian Mbappe. But the one player, obviously, that Bayern Munich were missing at the weekend was Alfonso Davies. Now, Alfonso Davies has has got a huge amount of credit um, over the last season, rightly so. He's had a, a had an excellent uh, year or so at, at, at Bayern Munich. But a lot of the focus is is often on what he does in an attacking sense, and he he it does feel like he's very much a, a winger converted into a, into a fullback, which of course mm. is exactly what he is. But he does have a, a real defensive value in wit as well. And with that high line, I mean, his pace gives him that ability to, to basically mop up the, the Barcelona, uh, it's the Barcelona, the Bayern Munich uh, back line. And so without him, and, and David Alaba is not particularly slow, but he doesn't have that raw pace. And, and really without him there, it, it just felt like Bayern Munich were really, really exposed. And and that, that was one of my main takeaways from this game was Davis might not be the most natural defensive figure, but he is really important to that defence. Absolutely. I'd 100% agree with that. The high line doesn't quite work as well without him. But also, I'd also point to Joshua Kimmich. I think they're really missing him screening. And as much as I was criticising Silla and Boateng uh, for their performances there, I think if Kimmich could have been there, it would have been a pretty different story, wouldn't it? Yeah, and 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 he's such a he's such an intelligent player, Joshua Kimmich. Like he's he 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 does so many things uh, really well, and 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 in that sense, he is really the. I mean, this is not an original thought, but he he is the natural successor to to Philip Lamb, in that he obviously he plays right back and central midfield, but just in the way that he he can screen, he can recycle possession, he's got a good shot on him, he can cover, and and without that figure. Um, obviously Benjamin Pavard, who's not a you know not a bad re- uh, replacement or right back by any stretch, and obviously he is he is uh, he is you would say maybe Bayern Munich's first choice right back. It's a little bit of a funny dynamic they have where sometimes for the big games they'll play Kimmich at, at, at right back just because he's a he's a safer option, and they have options in midfield that can that can fill in for Kimmich. But um, whether it's at right back or in centre midfield, they they really did miss him and and that protection that he he affords the the back four as you as you referenced there yeah definitely and i'd say graham obviously both teams getting three goals here but I, one of the big takeaways for me in terms of the difference between the two teams was bayern had to find the space to score the goals whereas leipzig were given the space and i think that that's evident in that forsberg header goal i mentioned there and you look at it conversely with uh um with thomas muller's goal with come on putting muller in for that goal where he kind of he lived up to his raumdeuter uh 
what was that maker of space name uh yeah. doing very well if only if only he was eligible for the german national team graham if only there was some way he could play for that national team i think he's still got a role to play Definitely. anyway um that, that that was the difference for me that, that bayern had to find the space because they offered a, a lot more than leipzig did certainly at the back and uh, while we're talking about those uh, bayern goals kingsley command he had a bit of a game, didn't he? Three a hat trick of assists there. <laughs> what I would, what I noted about him is, um, I think he's sort of the master of the sideways pass on the edge of the box, which he did for the one-one equaliser. I think he also did for 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 um in the build-up to Muller's two-one uh, goal there as well. He's really really good at finding the space in the final third, isn't he? Yeah, a hat trick of assists. I think they call that a Harry Kane these days, this season. <laughs> um, yeah, Kingsley Coleman, what a player he is. And I, and I just think he is an illustration of just how strong Bayern Munich are in the attacking third because you would maybe put him in, uh, maybe I'm going slightly over the top here, but would you say he's maybe a top five wide attacking player in Europe? I, I certainly think he's in that He's in that yeah. discussion at the moment. Um, and he's not guaranteed a place in this Bayern Munich team. I know he, he's been playing a lot this season, but Leroy Sané going forward has to be, I know he started this game, but you know they've got Sané, Nabry and Coleman to pick from in, in, in those roles. Obviously, Muller and, and Lewandowski are pretty much nailed on to, to start when when they're fit. But Coleman, out of those three, you know, there's only two positions. So he's not guaranteed to start in this Bayern Munich team. And, and he is a sensational player um, who, as you say there, he's, he's so good at finding space in the final third, and he, he just he just makes things happen uh, as demonstrated by the fact that he, he got three assists in this game. It, this was this was a really good performance by him. Yeah, and a good performance from uh, Jamal Mazalia as well, Mizialla, I should say. Sorry, who's uh, play, who started at Chelsea Academy, uh, spent most of his childhood in England, uh, played it for England under 15s, 16s, 17s, and 21s. Really nice uh, uh, strike from outside the box from him. Best Englishman in the Bundesliga, possibly, Graham. We've got a lot of competition there with Bellingham, Sancho, uh, Sancho and let's not forget Erling Haaland and Gio Reyna, which we have established previously <laughs> are very much Englishmen in the Bundesliga. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the difference with uh, Musiala and, and Haaland and, and Reyna is I think he might actually play for England. I think he's <laughs> he's obviously born in uh, in Stuttgart. Yeah. Uh, I was looking into him and, and I think at certain youth level, he has actually played for Germany. But I, I think in previous interviews, he said he, he's, he's pretty much committed to, to, to England. So another really exciting uh, English talent, which uh, as a Scot, I uh, certainly don't begrudge. Am I uh, grinding of the teeth coming through the microphone? <laughs> how very gracious of you Graham thank you very much <laughs> um yeah so is, is there anything more to say about this game maybe we could talk about um RB Leipzig they did find quite a lot of ways through uh Tyler Adams looking pretty decent uh hard-working performance in that sort of number six midfield role uh three dribbles 12 recoveries three clearances two interceptions he won four duels uh a decent day for uh, Yanks abroad decent weekend for Yanks abroad and he was pretty decent in this one yeah, he was, and as you say, a, a very decent uh, weekend for for the Americans. I think there was a stat I saw: three different Americans, which were obviously Pulisic, McKenney, and Gio Reyna, scored in one of the five major European leagues in the same day for the first time since August twenty seventh, two thousand and five. Now, can you guess who the three Americans were in two thousand and five that scored in in the, in one of the five major leagues on 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 the same day? Any I'm names guessing, that come to mind? Is it the Premier League? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'll give you a bit of a helping hand by which I, I mean I'll just name them three of them go, go so ahead. we don't end up with uh, two minutes of, of dead <laughs> air here. Brian McBride, Claudio Reyna, and Jermaine Jones were the last three players. So I mean that really does seem like a, a, a passing of, of the baton between that 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 uh, generation to the new generation. And wow, what a difference! I mean Pulisic, McKenney, Reyna. I mean they're playing for. You know the, some of the best teams in Europe. Uh, we, we're going to think talk about a little bit about Sergino Dest, who's playing for Barcelona. And I just think back to a time when there was a debate about Giuseppe Rossi. Do you remember that picking yeah. picking Italy over America, which seemed like a disaster for America at the time? Obviously, a, a guy who was very much tied to 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 the USA and who picked to play for Italy. And American soccer fans were really distraught at that, and it felt like a massive blow. And now you think, well, they've got several better players than him playing regularly and starring for some of the biggest teams in, in Europe. And you, another thing I think back to is just that game in, in Trinidad and Tobago, where obviously things went terribly wrong before the World Cup and the US missed out in qualification. And, and really, since then, it's it's things have really flourished. I mean, darkest before the dawn. I know that's a cliche, but it really does feel a bit like that. Does indeed. Exciting times for US soccer. And uh, let's move on to uh, La Liga, where there was a, a, an American involved, as we mentioned. Not a fortunate day for him, however. Cadiz getting a two-on win over Barcelona on a day where Real Madrid won 1-0 at Sevilla. They climbed up to third. Barcelona down in ninth now. Cadiz's first win over Barca since 1991. They've gone up to fifth place, and it was Barcelona's fourth defeat of the season. Uh for context there, in 2018-19, when Barca won the league, they only lost three games. So they've already lost a game more than that. Barcelona here, Graham, with 82% possession, 21 shots, one goal to Cadiz's two. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah, and a, a really poor performance by Barcelona. Just as it actually started to look like they were they were finding a little bit of, of rhythm, I think they'd won three or four games coming into this one. They'd, mm. they'd won in the Champions League. They've, I think they've actually got 100% record in the Champions League. They've got more points in the Champions League than they do in La Liga this season, which is which is nuts. And Arsenal um, more in the Europa League than in the Premier League, I believe. <laughs> yeah, that, but you could say Arsenal, you know, Europa League, they're the, the quintessential Europa League club Arsenal these days. Sorry, Arsenal fans, but just uh, speaking facts here. But uh, the, the Champions League is is obviously a much higher standard and, and really strange because obviously they've got quite a, a relatively, I mean, I know Ferenc Varos are in that group, but a relatively challenging group with uh, with Juventus in there and they won 2-0 away from home. So uh, they're a really difficult team to, 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 to measure Barcelona at the moment, but this was a, a really poor performance. I think the, the poorest they've, they've played this season. Um, Brathwaite, who has been the, the difference for them in recent games, I never thought I would be saying that about Martin Brathwaite, the same Martin Brathwaite that that flopped at, at Middlesbrough, yeah. even the same Martin Brath- Brathwaite, who's, who did pretty well for, for Leganes. You know, he was a good player for them, but Leganes are, uh, were bottom feeders and La Liga obviously got relegated last season. Um, you never really saw this coming, but he he's looked like one of the better players for Barcelona this season, but even he was very poor in this game. He only touched the ball 16 times. Um, Messi, he looked sharper in stages in, the, in in this match. He's looked a little bit better recently, but in terms of his output, still not good enough for Lionel Messi. And I, again, that's another thing I never thought I'd really be saying about Lionel Messi, certainly not at this stage of his career. I mean, he's, he scored just two goals in his last 16 away games in La Liga. He had over 10 shots against Cadiz and, and his XG value, his expected goals value was, was just 0.5. So... Hmm. Just a, an illustration of how it never really felt like he was he was going to find the back of the net. A lot of free kicks, which 
someone really needs to have a word with Messi and take him off free kicks because that hasn't been happening for him for a long time. Um, I think he scored one out of something like his last 48 attempts uh, from free kicks. So um, not happening for him from there. And that's really where he gets the majority of his shots from. So just really not happening for Barcelona. A lack of structure. Coleman's subs are woeful. And that's something that's really coming in for a lot of criticism at the moment. It feels like when Barcelona are up against it and they need to turn around the game, his only strategy is just to throw on as many attacking players as he can. Mm. And in a game where the Cadiz were already playing a, a, a low block, a low defensive block and plugging the gaps and keeping things tight, it really didn't help Barcelona to then have six attackers, which is what they had for the, the final 50 minutes of the game. They had six attackers on the pitch. The final third is just so congested and really you're just relying on a lucky break of the ball or a deflection or a little bit of luck to get to get back on level terms and that just didn't happen. Yeah, he did bring on Pedri and um, and Dembele in the second half. And you could argue things got improved. But yeah, there was that that, that congestion issue and it may be just a Band-Aid on, on the issues here. Leo Messi, if we can go back to him, I thought watching him play this game, Graham, he did look, I felt there was something sharper about him. It looked like he getting a lot of touches and like he, he wanted it a bit more in this game. And he was decent and creative and all, all those kind of messy things. But once again, there was this over-reliance on him. And there's this, you know, Messi will dribble through five players, find a pass and just have it immediately put back to him. Uh, and that, that, that kind of dependency runs through this Barcelona team and it has for some time. And we even had him, did he take a, he took a, he took the ball off of uh, Griezmann's boot at one point. I think he's, he's gone to the point where he's <laughs> dispossessing teammates as well. So that's not great, that over-reliance. No, and, and the relationship between Griezmann and, and Messi, is, it's almost comical at times. I mean, it's got to that stage where Messi just... He doesn't trust them. It's quite clear in, in, in the, the way they play on the pitch. I actually think that's been one of the, the better things recently about Barcelona is that Griezmann's been playing on the left and Brathwaite through through the middle. And so obviously with Messi on the right, you've you've kind of got Brathwaite between Messi and Griezmann and, and Messi just prefers to play off Griezmann. And, and the other difference, uh, just to talk about Sergino Dest, is Messi really trusts Sergino Dest. I think that's he's been maybe one of the only success stories of, of Barcelona's season so far is that he's given them more variety. They, he's given them more variety in the way they attack. So previously, Messi would pick up the ball and almost always he would look to the left for Jordi Alba. They have a, a really uh, inherent relationship. Those two players, they always pick each other out. But what I was noticing, and I've noticed it in recent games, it wasn't an isolated case, but against Cadiz. Messi was picking up the ball and he was looking to the right more often. He was looking for Dest and there was a couple of times where Dest was actually played in behind. He made that run, which is a run that Sergio Roberto just doesn't make. And it's a run that Alba makes on the other side. So Messi knows how to how to pick out that pass. I think Dest actually had the best opportunity late on to, to, to score the equaliser. Um, and he obviously scored, I think, in the Champions League a, a few days earlier as well, his first Barcelona goal. So he's one bright spot. But with Messi, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. It, he, he looked a bit sharper. He's been really lethar- lethargic this season. He, he, there was a little bit more of a zip to his play, but I, I just look at his attacking output again, and and it's it's not just goals. It's it's shots on targets. It's oppor- uh, uh, opportunities. The positions he's getting into. He's he's increasingly playing more as a as a playmaker, which is fine. I think we all expected that from his career that he, that would happen, but it, it doesn't count for much when you don't have anyone further forward to to play into to 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 play into danger dangerous positions and this Barcelona team is just a, a little bit of a mess at the moment and and Coleman 
it feels like he's a placeholder until the the next president is is in, is in place. But to be honest, the way it's going for him, it, it it might be a little bit of surprise even if he lasts that long. Yeah, yeah, I think you're quite right there, and 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 you're right to give credit to Dest. I think uh, offering some really good service in this game. I think he was the only Barcelona player who was actually offering this team width as well, because we know how Messi sort of tucks in and goes central. Uh, Griezmann doesn't obviously offer any width really. Coutinho was playing out on the wing, but not best used in that position so it was kind of up to Des to get the ball wide and to try and and try and get some creative channels through that right that right side um so, so yeah it, it is a very a very uh disorganized very messy not in the other sense Barcelona team at the moment and it's once again a Barcelona team struggling against an op- opponent who sits in a low block and I think the problem Graham is that Barcelona when they play in the Liga most teams are going to sit in a low block against them. <laughs> so they're going to have this week in, week out. Yeah, this is every single week for Barcelona. I mean, even even Atleti, when they play them, they'll play this way. Real Madrid, they'll they'll largely play this way. I mean, not quite as uh, as crude a low defensive block as as someone like Cadiz would 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 implement. But yeah, they'll they'll play this way. So this is this is La Liga for Barcelona. This is this is every single game. They need to find out a way to to break these teams down and the coming to his credit i mean he's not quite he's not quite uh been as static as we were talking about arteta earlier who just doesn't doesn't seem to be trying anything different he has tried different options i mean pedri's been fast tracked into that team to to try and give them something in a number 10 role coutinho's been played in that number 10 role then moved out to the left griezmann's been played up front now he's out left brathwaite's brought been brought into the team They've moved to a 4-2-3-1. They've moved to a 4-3-3. So he, he is trying some things. But on the flip side of that, that just means there's a real lack of consistency in Barcelona's performances this season. And they're really struggling to, to build any sort of momentum. Just at the point we thought they were, they suffered the worst defeat of the season. Yeah, uh, worst defeat of the season. Yeah, I think you're probably quite right there. And it is. And, and I'd like to go back, Graham, and count the amount of points that Barcelona have lost, maybe just this season, from individual errors. Because you could argue both these goals were uh, were errors. Um, the, the first goal, the, the in-swinging corner for Alvaro Jimenez to, to, to tap in and save um, poor old Mingueza from getting the own goal there. But if you look at the the way that set up, there were. Two shirt, two yellow shirts, completely open in the box when the ball comes in, when the inswinging corner comes in. So, like, there's some definitely some defensive frailty there, not just from uh, uh, poor Mingueza, who was taken off in this game as well. And then um, the, the the winner for Cadiz, Alvaro Negredo, um, proving that Alvaro Negredo is still a thing, which is wonderful to see. Um, you know, <laughs> for, forcing a pretty uh, a, a, a cacophony of errors from. Um, from Barcelona with Alba throwing the bat, uh, the ball back to Longley who completely misses it. Longley had a pretty poor game in general. I'd say that he, he either misses the ball or deliberately lets it go to his folly uh, and to Stegen when he comes to try and clean up. It's weird because he doesn't go, you'd expect him to go to ground a little bit more than he does. He instead tries to hoof it with his feet. He doesn't realize he, he's a goalkeeper and he, he's got more weapons than that. So it was a bad throw, a bad miss and bad goalkeeping. It's sort of, a cacophony of errors, as I say, for that for that winning goal for Cadiz. Yeah, you, you sum that up well. I, I think obviously the the final error from from Ter Stegen is the one that you focus on, and and he's he's really weak. And as you say, you you don't really know why he doesn't go to ground, and 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 it's kind of puts in a half hearted clearance attempt. But yeah, he, Longley's put put into trouble by the throw in. Longley's touch is poor, which then puts Ter Stegen into trouble, and then it all culminates in, in a goal and this is where I have some sympathy for Coleman um, even though his his some of his team selections are really weird his tactics aren't working his subs are really poor 
Barcelona, the biggest thing that is is keeps pegging them back is individual errors, and not mm. just small individual errors, huge, huge individual errors. I mean, let's not forget it was a a Ter Stegen blunder that cost Barcelona the the game against Atletico Madrid, which Atleti won one nil uh, two weeks ago. That was that was down to one of his errors and, and you're talking about one of the best goalkeepers in the world who Ter Stegen I've written pieces recently about Ter Stegen being Barcelona's second best player behind Lionel Messi and, and he's now making huge mistakes Clement Longley Clement Longley has has been a pretty good signing for Barcelona he's, be, he's been a, a decent reliable defender he's he's become first choice over Samuel Untiti which at a time you didn't see that happening he makes a huge mistake. Alba, who's 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 pretty dependable. Poor throw-in, huge mistake. You know, Busquets, almost a big mistake in every single game he plays. You know, so mm. the, it, that's where I have sympathy for Coleman. And, and I don't really know. I, I think that just maybe comes down to the confidence confidence in, in a dressing room. Obviously, it's up to the manager to instill confidence, but that's a that's a really abstract discussion and not something that you can kind of work on on, on a tactics board. Yeah, it is a bit abstract, but you're right that individual errors are not just one of those things. There is something cultural, there's something going on there that's causing that lack of confidence. And you just touched on Busquets there as well. Before I, before, before I have said my piece on Barcelona, that De Jong and Busquets double pivot, which Kerman's been using a little bit, doesn't seem to work against teams that park the bus, teams that sit in the low block. And I don't know, would 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 you put a Pjanic in there maybe to shake things up a little bit? It just, I, I don't even know if that's the solution to the problems at the moment, but it just, there is a, maybe uh, there, there is a sense that that Kuban's not setting up quite right either as well. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right to say that the double pivot against teams like uh, Cadiz or, or, or uh, I mean, I know Cadiz are actually flying quite high in La Liga yeah. at the moment, but um, traditional lower teams in La Liga, you know, it's it's not really working. And I don't think you would, I don't think you really need two holding players against those sort of teams. It feels it feels like maybe you you would be better with a more creative figure, and and De Jong might actually be that creative figure. It's just he he seems to be being held back by by Coleman, who wants him to play in this double pivot, double pivot role and and it's not really working Busquets isn't really poor form I think Pjanic is probably the replacement for him rather than De Jong but he's maybe a better option at, the, at this moment in time but the 4-2-3-1 formation isn't really working for Barcelona but equally I don't think 4-3-3 is a, a better fit for them at the moment so um, it's just a really unbalanced squad that, that they've got right now and, and everything is culminating in a, in a, in a really poor season. It is indeed, and uh, may, maybe a tricky um, game at the Camp Nou on Tuesday night. Bar- Barcelona welcoming Juventus for that one, so we'll have uh, maybe a couple of Americans on the field for that game. Graham, thank you very much for joining me for the weekend review this week. It's been a pleasure, as always. Maybe we should just touch on the fact that the MLS Conference Finals have happened and are indeed happening at the moment. Congratulations to Columbus Crew gaining the 1-0 win at New England Revolution. Um, this is five years after they hosted the 2015 MLS Cup Final. It's been quite a journey for the crew since then, you could argue, going from <laughs> nearly having their team stolen away. I know how that certainly feels as a Wimbledon fan. Fan power saving that team, now back in MLS Cup final with a rebirth of sorts. That's pretty wonderful to see, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great redemptive tale, you know, for for those fans that that saved the club. I know, obviously, it was uh, you know it was owners uh, that you know new owners that they got that really kept the, the team in, in in Columbus. But the, the fans were the ones that that put the pressure on and 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 really created that situation. So fantastic to see that they're in MLS uh, Cup again. Obviously. Matford Stadium is going to get one last big game. It's, this isn't its last game because I think it's next summer they move into the, the new stadium. So they're still going to have a few games next year. But an MLS Cup is is 
is a farewell to a stadium that look it's it's past its best isn't it it's uh, outdated it feels like mls has moved into another era with stadiums like bank california and mercedes-benz but um it's played a massive role in mls first soccer specific stadium in in, in the league it's obviously been home to numerous uh, Dos Acero games and yeah. became a bit of a home stadium for the, for the US men's national team. So I think it'll be uh, quite sad to see it actually hosting one last big game and, and knowing that it's the, the big occasion's not going to return there. So uh, I have to say, even though you know the Bruce Arena narrative was, was pretty good, and I think if the Revs had made it through to MLS Cup final, they were actually going to rename the whole league Major League Bruce Arena. I heard that on the grapevine. Um <laughs> But yeah, I, I did. I have to say, I was I was tentatively rooting for the crew to get through this one just because of the the, the redemption for those those set of fans. The redemption is a good story. I hope one day there is a Bruce Arena arena in uh, Major League Soccer as well. That, <laughs> that's something I really need to see. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll sign that petition. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Graham, and thank you again for joining me on the weekend review. It's been a blast and a pleasure speaking to you once again. Thanks, Ryan. It's uh, it's always uh, good to go and have a good week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.